Hey, it's Laura. Welcome to TMST. So as much as we don't like to admit it, we run our lives based on a lot of shoulds. There's these ideas that are so woven into who we are that we're not even aware they exist most of the time. And for virtually all women, the scripts around motherhood are the most pernicious. They load us down with constant self-doubt, bake in these completely unattainable expectations, and they set us up for a life where we're always defined in relationship to others, our kids, or especially lack of kids. Today's guest, Erin Lane, has spent most of her life challenging these scripts, and her latest book, Someone Other Than a Mother, amazing title, tears up the shaming social scripts that are bad for moms and non-moms alike. When you hear things like, motherhood is the toughest job there is, or you just don't know love until you become a mother. We are encountering the social scripting that defines what is normal, quote unquote, for the majority of American women. And this conversation with Erin is equal parts liberating and bracing. I think she's cracking something that we need to discuss in specific ways. And I'm so thrilled to have her on as a guest. If you care about these kinds of conversations, I hope you become a TMST Plus member. The Plus members are the engine behind this project. The memberships help us pay for the cost of making the show and keeping it coming your way. You can find the link in show notes or head over to tmstpod.com. Five, 10, 20 bucks a month makes a huge difference. And thank you to everyone who has become a TMSD Plus member. You are making it possible for us to bring you this conversation. All right, here is Erin. Enjoy. Thank you for being here, Erin. So excited to talk to you. Uh, likewise. So you wrote this amazing book called Something Other Than a Mother. You were raised, with, a, like most of us, with a lot of messages about motherhood. When did you first realize that you didn't want to have children or you could choose not to have children? And was there a moment or like a precipitating incident that gave you that thought? Yeah, so I grew up Catholic in the American Midwest on white bread and Jesus, as I like to say. (laughs) And I remember being around 12 when the True Love Waits campaign swept through our small Chicago suburb. If you're not familiar, it was this interdenominational movement with evangelical roots that asked youth to pledge their chastity to their future mate. But the really interesting thing is it also asked us to pledge our chastity to our future children. And I don't know how much I was tracking at 12 about future children come again. What are, what are, what are you assuming about my reproductive life already? But there was something in that uh, supposition that one, I would marry, and two, that my sex would be procreative eventually. And so I got the message around then that either my choices were mother or mother superior. And I only intoned that I could be a nun or, or live a life as a spinster simply because I had nuns 
teaching me in Sunday school class and was a part of a Catholic parish, that was nowhere in the pledge. Nowhere in the pledge was like lifelong celibacy is also a good way to go. And so it was only because, or largely because, I had parents that were very American in their messages to me accompanying this religious education. So my dad, the Republican, probably said something to me like, you can be anything you want to be, which is not the most helpful thing to say, but it does counter some of the messages that there are only two choices for a life well lived. And then my mom was a nurse educator. And so she was very, very faithful, but still like your body is a gift from God and your body belongs to you. And so sometime around late high school, after my parents divorced, I ended up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is, as anyone who knows Ann Arbor, a really progressive enclave. Most of my friends were Jewish. None of them shared my anxiety about sex. And I think it was that cultural padding in high school that allowed me to start saying, oh, there's some parts of my faith that are still really important to me, and I'm going to cling on to those until they start failing me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there are also all of these other people that are helping me realize that, one, the possibilities for my life are so much bigger and wilier and wider than I had imagined. And two, I simply don't think I have the same built-in feelings and imagination and calling, to use a religious word, for this thing called motherhood that everyone seems to have a little bit of an imagination for. And I had an imagination for a lot of things, but motherhood was not one of them. And I took that as an early sign that, huh, I wonder what it would be like to choose marriage without motherhood. I wonder what it would be like to choose me and nurturing my own life and not pouring all my energy into nurturing small lives. So much of your book takes this form of like putting language to something that I couldn't, that I'm sure many women or mothers can't. And I'm assuming that's something that you have heard (laughs) since writing it. What are people hearing in what you've written? So I originally wanted to write a book for the childless, the child-free, and unlikely families. And I had some good titles picked out for that book. (laughs) I bet. And I worked on that book. I worked on that preface for like a year. I was like, this is going to be the book. Because so much of my 20s were spent writing against the stigma that the childless and child-free and women making unlikely families were living a lesser life, were not happy and fulfilled and socially engaged and faithful people who could actually show up and live these big, beautiful, verdant lives. And that felt really important to me to privilege those people's stories. But in writing uh, this book, I got the feedback that Aaron aren't, aren't aren't you mothering now? And that's part of my story is that I was happily child-free for the common good is how I like to self-righteously say it um, (laughs) for a long time until I unexpectedly, because I wanted to be available to my community, uh, ended up becoming a foster parent. And then the very first placement uh, was a sibling set of three gorgeous guarded girls uh, that we ended up saying yes to being their, quote, forever home. And it was just disingenuine 
to write a book that didn't also talk about what it was like to be a mother, to be recognized as a mother in American culture, in American Christianity in particular, and to also wrestle with how these scripts about what a life well-lived looks like for a woman impact women who are mothering. And mm-hmm. so I, I love that the book ended up being, I hope, a witness to how hard it is for women, whether they're mothers or not, to digest these scripts, to reject these scripts, to investigate these scripts, and to rewrite more life-giving narratives, because it still feels like the blueprints for the traditional scripts are large and loud and hard, hard to sometimes not take personally and figure out what is my work to do around making peace with the people I'm caregiving for and what is actually not at all about me. And so I think there were so many things in writing the book and that's the feedback I've gotten that it has helped depersonalize a lot of the shame women feel for not feeling what they're supposed to about motherhood. And it's also given them more of an imagination for if I don't make mother and mothering the center of my identity, what are the options? Like, how can that be a good life too? And so the book is laced with my own story, but also interviews as well with other women who are going off script. You did accomplish that with the book, I'll say, (laughs) I think, in my view. I don't want to just gloss over the fact that you ended (laughs) end up adopting three children and like so so the timing of that just give us a timeline high level overview when that happened how old you were and and how old they are or were when you wrote the book yeah okay so if high school was when I started to figure out one of these things is not like the other college is where I started studying the the mother scripts and uh, realizing, oh my gosh, it's not actually safe to be a mother. It's not actually easy to be a healthy, whole mother in this country. Okay, now this is sort of confirming that I think I could do more good and live uh, <laughs> a more fulfilled life if I opted out of mothering altogether. At that same time, I meet my partner really young, too young, disgustingly young. I was so embarrassed. How young? Um, I met him when I was 18. And I was from the North. And so everyone was like, oh, gosh, you're done. You're done. Your life is over, right? And everyone in the South was like, way to go. Congratulations. Like, you found him. And it was, oh, I was just like, I... 30. 30 sounded like a nice age to meet you. Mm -hmm. But we got married. We got married young at 22 and 24. And he agreed to marry me on the condition that I probably never wanted biological children. And at that point, I didn't want any children living under my roof. I was like, I've got things to do. I've got missions to accomplish. And I actually think we need adults in our community who are not also parenting because there's a capacity that you have to do work and a singularity of focus you have uh, for your community, at least for a season, um, that felt really like juicy and interesting and well-suited for my low-capacity energy. I've got like two good hours in me a day, and then I'm done. So in my 20s, Rush and I, my husband, uh, declared ourselves child-free for the common good and decided we were going to be available to other people's friends, uh, or our friends' children, I should say. And again, not because we like children, but because we liked other people. And we're like, this is what one does 
to be uh, in their community. And I always say for reasons I can't explain, it just wasn't the friends like family picture I'd imagined. It just wasn't. Like you weren't welcomed as part of the social strata that you thought you might be? Yes, yes. And it still felt like because we weren't family, we weren't actually given access into the real intimate moments. Mm. And I have lots of theories on why that is. I think part of it was us and how we were moving towards our friends, like I said, with a little bit of self-righteousness. Uh-huh. We're here <laughs> um, to help. I, this, yeah, yeah right? <laughs> I've got so much capacity. Oh, you look tired. What do you need? I Right? Like, I just... I, I think back to that time period and, you know, I have compassion for my younger self, but I would do things differently now. And my friends, on the other hand, are living in the South. We're based in North Carolina. They have the means to buy houses. Uh, their grandparents are coming in regularly to help care for children, so they don't actually need the friend two blocks away to do the heavy lifting. Yeah. And so there were a lot of reasons why, at the end of our 20s, we looked at one another and said, I think we have capacity for more. And I wonder about people in our community that don't have the resources our friends have and actually how we might be more useful to them and how they might uh, have something to speak into our lives about like the carefully curated comforts we have organized ourselves around. Yeah. And so really we just wanted to be better neighbors uh, is what we decided uh, and to be neighbored by others who were available. And that's how we got into fostering. This is a very intentional decision, intentional thought process. We, you know, far more than I've heard other people talk about. We're not going to have children because of this, but we're going to still be very involved in our community. Did that come from the church and your, your background and involvement in the church? Did you both stay in the church? Speak to some of those dynamics. Yes. So yes, I I do think this decision, I know this decision to be available to our community was informed by the church and our upbringing and a theology. I'm a theologian, so (laughs) theology, simple simple definition, uh, how we talk about God. My theology was deeply rooted in the idea that actually the Christian call above all else is to love God and love neighbor like yourself. That that was, that was the vocation and that surely children and family could fall under that umbrella, but they were not what was venerated most. That self-love and other love, pointing to God love, was what lives needed to be oriented around. And further, I should say I grew up after my parents' divorce, primarily with my mom, who functioned as a single mom for most of my life. And she had a ministry that she called the Ministry of Availability. And so we kind of took on that, I took on that terminology in my 20s to say, I think there's something really beautiful. One, about (laughs) having margin in your life so that you can actually be available to your neighbor. Mm -hmm. Um, But two, People that don't have cultural padding to protect them from asking for help, they can't buy their way out of their problems, 
uh, are actually people who are really showing what it looks like to care for one another and take care of who's here. And so I was really compelled by the call that I read in scripture to take care of widows and orphans in particular. And I was very suspicious of the way white people had done that. So I ended up at grad school at Duke Divinity studying theology and realizing, okay, how does one show up in their community in compelling ways, but also not have this terrible savior complex Yeah, (laughs) that often white well-to-do Christians have when they decide to, quote, do service work. And so we were really trying to counter that mm-hmm. and thought fostering, even though historically does have a lot of those roots laced in, it also felt like if, if, if the relationships were deep and if the relationships were happening in our home and if the relationships were having, happening locally in our city, that that would protect us from some of the more troubling aspects of (laughs) Christians on a mission for the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) How old were your children when you fostered them, adopted them? How old were were you and Rush too? Yeah, so I believe when we started, I think I was like 31 and Rush was 33 and the girls were six, eight and 10. Mm And that was one of the other confirming things about fostering. You have to take a 30-hour class on parenting children with trauma. And it was really illuminating in that class to feel like all of the things that other people were like, ooh, fostering, isn't it mostly older kids? Heck yeah, older kids are in school all day. That sounds nice. (laughs) Or, oh gosh, don't you have to be like uh, a co-parent in community? Heck yeah, that sounds really nice. I don't want all the heat. I want to share the heat when something goes wrong. I want to like look at two other people and be like, like two's not even enough. Like two's not even enough, right? I want to look at a whole like room of people who are like sitting down with paperwork and like listing out this child's strengths and needs. Like that sounds great. I love paperwork. I love teamwork. Like let's parent this way. Oh, but don't you have to have a lot of like visitors in your home? Again, great. great. Any professionals that want to like comment on my parenting, you are welcome. Please give me advice. <laughs> Please give me it. strategies. So it was so interesting. It was so confirming that class. Again, that feeling of one of these things is not like the other. I actually think I'm getting really excited where other people are getting really hesitant. And so we were, yeah, early 30s when our three girls moved in and We were only licensed for two. We didn't expect to foster three, and it really was completely overwhelming and more than I can handle. But Mm -hmm. I often think those are the best, can be, can be, if you're well-resourced, really uh, illuminating moments. And especially for someone that describes herself as a low-capacity woman. It felt like a low fishes moment. I love that that you do that. (laughs) I just love it. You own it. You're like, yeah, I've got two hours. That's about it. Yeah, and you're getting one of them right now. (gasps) Yay! (laughs) I'm so honored. Okay, so that's great. Now I feel like we can, we've satisfied some basic, important background questions and we can move forward. So you, the book is organized around these scripts that we have around motherhood, which is so smart because it just, it hits right on like nail on the head, nail on the head, nail on the head, right? Can you walk us through the idea of scripts and and that we have about women and motherhood and maybe even talk through a couple of them? Yeah. 
So social scripts are like a social choreography. So the practices and behaviors, my book is organized into sayings, like things people say to women that communicate that your highest self is hiding in your reproductive role. (laughs) So whether you become a biological mother, an adoptive mother, or my favorite, a spiritual mother, and I say my favorite because often there's like this move in progressive Christianity to uh, just assert that even if you're not mothering, you're a spiritual mother, whether you want to be identified that way or not. So it can be really beautiful and helpful, and it can be a really coercive compliment. Yeah. But the idea of these social scripts and... Uh, I refer to them as the mother scripts, these particular social scripts around motherhood and what makes for a woman's life well-lived are really the unspoken, sometimes unspoken, underlying assumptions about how a good life should go. And so every chapter in my book, as you said, is things people say from your biological clock is ticking to, but you'd make a great mom uh, or it'll be different with your own. You'll regret not having kids and the mother of all mother scripts. You don't know love until you become a mother. Mm-hmm. So there are nine different mother scripts that, you know, really shame women who don't go the traditional motherhood route. And my hope, every chapter also has a rewrite, something that I think is a more healthy and whole and generous and inclusive way of thinking about what that script is probably trying to do. Because again, the scripts. Uh, themselves aren't inherently bad. What's bad about them is when they get assumed to be universal truth for all women. And what's bad is when we actually take an uncritical look, or no look at all, about how they're actually making us not co-authors of our lives. Well, it's the morality attached to them, too. Mm, Say more. Say more. Well, it's the morality attached to every... It's not just a, a, a... a statement. It's not just a logical or even <sighs> rational. It's, uh, you know, like, like, oh, the best way to achieve this, the end result of this product, you know, build would be to do X, Y, Z. Without the, the morality around that, it's mm. very, mo- these are very morally based statements. There's so yes. much righteousness built into them. So it's yes. not just about productivity or, you know, achieving the, the yielding the best results. It's really, if you're morally upright, hmm. you're going to feel this way. Mm-hmm. And if you don't follow the scripts, if you don't conform, then you're a threat, right? And that's why, that's why the scripts sometimes get levied, in particular, towards childless and child-free women, because you are already with your life not following script. And women that don't follow the script are dangerous women. Yeah, dangerous women. You talked about the that it harms people who become who are childless women or, you know, women with non traditional families, but it also harms the mothers. Yes. Right. Right. So one of the scripts in particular where it's really easy to see how it does this is motherhood is the toughest job in the world. And one, I think we should always be suspect when a relationship is turned into a unit of productivity. Mm-hmm. And two, it's responsible. It's responsible, that script, for this intensive parenting movement where women believe that they are the essential parent or perhaps men 
Also, it serves them to believe that women are the essential parent and that uh, your identity is wrapped up in how well your product turns out, right? If motherhood is a job, then of course you would want to put endless hours into it and you would want to see some result, some pride of <laughs> pride of work in your children. And I mean, it's, it's obvious, but that has proven to be really destructive for women's health. Um, the idea that parenting is tough, the idea that women are the essential parent, the idea that your children are a reflection of your worth. So what is it specifically in your view that is is so destructive about the motherhood is the toughest job in the world? Because it's it sounds like someone is giving credit to the difficulty mm. of motherhood. Like why is that? So that's why is that not true? Or we're venerating this amazing role. What is the destructiveness built into that script? The destructiveness is that the middle class in particular in America is very often uh, rewarded for putting their worth in their work. And so it's not that we are affirming that motherhood is tough. That's the problem. Although, again, the research does show <laughs> uh, that thinking it's tough actually makes it tougher. So I don't know what to do with that because it feels important to me to acknowledge that it's tough. But I suppose dwelling on the fact that it's tough isn't helping. I'm not that 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 piece of research is still curious to me. Mm-hmm. But I think it's this idea that our identity, our primary identity is rooted in something outside of our ability to belong to ourselves, our ability to rest, our ability to slow down and know that like our, our worth, our inner worth is not in question and that whatever we produce or reproduce is actually not a reflection of our inherent worth and dignity yeah. as a human being and as women. And that's where the spiritual stuff comes back in. That's where I, I lean on this idea that for those who consider themselves spiritual or religious, there's got to be something that our worth is rooted in that isn't work. And so, yes, can we say that, that motherhood is tough? Yes. That part, yes. The job part, I think, is the particularly shaming part of that script because mm-hmm. it, again, makes you turn children into a measure of your worth. And then what it makes you want to do is put all of your time and resources towards your child in particular, towards yes. your product in particular. And then we really lose out on a more uh, generous, common good approach to like, are all, all, are all people well? Oh God, um, I've never And do I need actually... to put some of my time and energy into that? Yeah. I've never actually thought about that particular piece about how that even that turns women into mothers, into competing with other mothers. Hmm. Right. You're competing for resources. And and accomplishments and how well mm. your kid's doing. And I mean, we already there are already a million other ways that we do that. Yes. Yeah. I had this thought in the middle of the night, <laughs> probably because we were going to have this conversation that the, you know, I've always been very hateful about the, you can have it all idea, the ethos that it's this, you know, product of, of supposed feminism, this idea that, oh, we can actually have it all. And, and what that 
d what it actually means is I think that actually applies to men in many cases that you can have it all. But for women, it's no, you can do it all. Hmm. You, you, you have to do it all. It's very different mm -hmm. than having it all. <laughs> huh. uh -huh. you, have, you, you have to do it all and look good and on and on and on. Yes, it's pervasive. And it's becoming, it's becoming more pervasive with fathers, actually, as well. Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of conversation with men who are very active dads but again, aren't cutting back on their ambitions at work. And so it just feels like it's like the 1980s Chia Pet where we like just add motherhood or just add fatherhood to our already full lives. Yes. And we are not actually saying no to anything to make that possible. And I, I think that's honestly one of the things that's most offensive about the childless or child-free is that Americans don't like an acknowledgement of limits. We really don't. Like, we really don't want someone to say, I don't, I don't actually think I could do that well. I don't actually think I could do that well and do this other thing that I want to do well. And that's what I heard from so many of the women I interviewed. They're like, I couldn't do what I want to do in my friendships. I couldn't do what I'd want to do in my social work. I couldn't do what I'd want to do to, like, heal from my own childhood traumas if I also were parenting. I couldn't do it well, that's what they're saying, right? I could do it. I could add it to my, my already full life, but there are actually other things that I want to attend to. And for some reason, that's <laughs> something that should be celebrated. Something that should be celebrated, the acknowledgement of limits isn't. It's sort of seen as cowardice or laziness or a lack of confidence. Totally. That's such an amazing gut punch statement. Americans don't like limits, <laughs> admitting limits. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you call the you don't know love until you become a mother, the, the mother of all motherhood scripts. Yeah. Well, what's the, the danger of claiming this as universal truth for both moms and non-moms alike? Yeah. This is the script that screwed me up uh, more than any other. And again, I had all of this cultural padding, these degrees in gender and theology, this partner uh, who was in it with me, saw the value of the life we were, we were leading both before and after parenting, and a community that sometimes said daft things and other times, <laughs> uh, if they listened a little bit longer, held me and saw me and was able to witness the curious life I was trying to lead. But it was this script that made me feel the most shame before motherhood and after motherhood. And I think it was only through writing the book that I realized why that is. And it's the idea that mother love should be an exceptional love, that there is something about motherhood that until you experience, you are like a shell of human capacity. You are like prepubescent. You don't know what you're missing. You're gangly and awkward and immature. And that can't be helped. That can't be helped because you haven't experienced this big, beautiful love that supersedes all loves. And it shamed me when I didn't have children because I, I, I really did feel like, well, maybe I'm just not capable of that. 
like, yes, I'm, I'm making these choices out of a desire to be available to my community, out of a recognition of my own gifts and limits, out of just a passion for other things. But there was like the sneaking suspicion that I just wouldn't be good at parenting if that's what it required. If it required like this all-consuming love, I was just like, maybe, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm just not capable of it. And I kind of wore that like a chip on my shoulder, right? Okay, maybe you're right. Yeah, maybe I'm not capable of that. But again, maybe I'm okay with that. Self-defense, right? Yep. And then it was after becoming a mother. And again, like asterisk, I get that I didn't become a mother traditionally and I didn't have all these like pregnancy hormones bathing my body. And I get that uh, I also met my children when they were older. And there are some like really unique attachment things that are happening in those early years. We are slowly working our way through and forming now. Mm-hmm. I get that. And uh, after becoming a mother, that script, you don't know love until you become a mother, just felt like a bunch of like BS because I didn't feel like a totally different person with totally different capacities on day one. Like as my therapist likes to say, like relationship builds capacity. <laughs> um, so I'm building my capacities, but not because I instantly became a mother, but because I'm a grown up who knows how to flex my muscles over time. And the idea that like mother love was now supposed to be this subsuming love or subsuming identity made me feel shamed after becoming a mother for not feeling this big, beautiful, all-encompassing love that other mothers talked about. And so for me, I always say, look, I don't dismiss that there are people who have like this really big before and after moment. Like Mm -hmm. they really do feel like before a parent, I was this way. And after becoming a parent, I was this way. Great. Speak for yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Like, let's just use I statements. I statements are really lovely and healing (laughs) and help us own the dignity of our own experience and desires and give other people the dignity of having theirs. And, and that, I think that is what, um, yeah, that is what I have wrestled through with that particular script. And that felt like the most dangerous thing I said in the book is I love my children, but I don't exceptionally love them above all else. Yeah. I think it's amazing that you said that. It's freeing and it's, mm-hmm. I'm assuming, has freed and will free a lot of women and mothers. Say Ooh, more so. Yeah, say more about the relationships build capacity because there's a line towards the end of the book. There's something, be- a beautiful line in there about, maybe you remember it, about this relationships mm. breeding capacity, limits breeding capacity. mm -hmm. Limits. I really love limits. I think what you're referring to is the letter to self I wrote to close the book. Yeah. So I decided to end the book with a letter to self to remember what I wanted to call from this book and this experience in this particular season of new parenting. And in that letter, I realized that what is at the core of people's confusion about mother love is that it actually makes you feel overwhelmed. It makes you feel completely limited and yet something magic happens when you are like, there is no way I can do this thing and this thing keeps happening 
um, this thing keeps growing. I'm not referring to children as things, but like... <laughs> the, the, um, well, it's also the, the whole, the, the entirety of the experience. <laughs> like, yeah. it does just keep happening. It just keeps happening. Like, it's relentless. There's no tap say, out button. Like No. Yeah. Oh, I used to say parenting is the art of ruthless presence. Like, it's just mm. ruthless how present you have to be to yourself and to other people all the time and to naming feelings. <laughs> Fine is not a feeling. Um, so, yes. Uh, so I, I guess I concluded, not I guess, I did conclude that we think parenting is so exceptional because of how much it levels us. And we think there's nothing else that can level us in that way. And maybe in your own life, that's true. For a lot of us, I, I assume that parenting is a great leveler and we haven't experienced something like that before. But for a lot of us, there are lots of other ways where we meet up against our limits and we feel overwhelmed and we feel like this, that we can't possibly go on. We can't possibly be the person we need to be to rise to this moment. But I think that's when the magic happens. That's when the community shows up or doesn't. That's when God shows up or doesn't. Mm -hmm. There's no formulas. There are no promises that it's like a romantic rosy picture. But that's where like space is created for you to be companioned. And if not by God, if not by your community, then at least to befriend yourself in those moments and to really say, okay, how is the community within my own body and spirit gonna show up for me in this moment? And I really do believe that limits are how love multiplies and that the only thing that protects us from choosing safety over and over again in our lives is to take on things we know we will not be good at <laughs> and to take on things we know are, are too big uh, to go it alone. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True and I co-created the show with Laura. You know, we have one goal here, put something into the world that helps all of us figure out how we can have a better week. And we think that the best way to do that is to keep the pod ad free so that all of the work goes toward making something that's useful for you instead of hustling to keep advertisers happy. And this is where you come in. TMST Plus is the membership program that helps to keep this show going. Whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMST Plus members are super important because they help to pay for the show's production and distribution costs. It's pretty sweet, makes a difference, and you can make it happen with a one-time gift for as little as $5 or $10 or $20 a month. If your situation is such that becoming a member doesn't work, it's all good. We hope you enjoy the show, maybe share it with a friend or two, and we hope you check out the playlist that we put together every week on Spotify. Just search the playlists for Tell Me Something True. It's free, and we're thrilled that you're here. And if you could become a member, well, you can find the link in the show description. Head over to tmstpod.com. Takes less than two minutes. And thanks.
thank you for putting all of this into words, but especially this part around limits, breeding, multiplying love, potentially multiplying love. I think that's incredible. It's a whole different way to have the sometimes very clinical boundary discussion. And it just, it just hits different. I'm always curious about tiny experiments. Like I'm curious about tiny experiments. I even catch myself doing it. I have a similar temperament to you in which it's my temptation is not to lean in too hard. It's to lean out too hard <laughs> yeah. when it comes to motherhood, right? So I have something to learn from mothers who, who know more about their kids' lives than I do. That is still a growing edge for me uh, is to know when uh, it's time to put down my obsessions in other areas and again, practice that ruthless presence yeah, with my own same. children. But I think the tiny experiment for mothers who experience guilt or have a hard time not feeling like motherhood is the superior source of meaning, identity, and love in their life uh, is to try, like every time you're about to do something for your child, like what would it be like to also accompany that uh, action with something reciprocal for yourself or for someone not your child? So even I was thinking the other day, I was researching like, uh, tennis lessons, uh, for my youngest. Uh, and I was like, why aren't I like, can I sign her up for like a tennis league or something, but not traveling? Yeah. (laughs) I can't do that. Yeah. I don't like driving that much, but, um, it occurred to me, why am I not looking to sign myself up for like a night volleyball league? I love volleyball. (gasps) I should move my body more. I I love volleyball. (laughs) Like I should totally join an adult rec league. Like my kids are old enough where like I could, I could do that. Um, And so I feel like I'm starting to like have these tiny experiments with like, okay, every time I think about doing an action for my child, what would it be like to also do that action for someone else and I get to be included? So again, you don't necessarily have to give up the identity that is important to you or maybe the worrying guilt. I assume that will come with uh, building more muscles for what is it like to simply have a larger capacity for something outside your own child? And what happens to that child when they see that there's actually more margin in their own life to move and be who they want to be and to Mm -hmm. be companioned by adults and peers that are not you? I'm not saying it's like a formula that's always going to work out where everybody wins. Sometimes your child just gives you the stink face and is like, you suck and are ruining my life you with failed. your self-agency <laughs> and determination. <laughs> but, but okay, let's talk about that because there's this idea that we can all win. Yeah. No. What if we just can't? I don't, I don't think we, yeah, there are some win-wins and then there are a lot of days where... We, we just can't. Yeah. Yeah. Where I, I, this summer, one of my, I have, uh, so now my kids are 17, 15 and 12. Wow. And the 15 year old doesn't have a job this summer. Uh, and so, uh, is often asking, can you give me a ride here? Can you give me a ride there? And I'm like, you realize, you realize I work, right? I know I'm here. I know I'm in our home, but like, I work. Oh yes. I'm very familiar um, with this conversation. Right. And so, Yeah, there are days where she's like, well, if you don't want to drive me, and I'm like, it's not a matter of want. Like, I am not available to drive you right now. And just so much of my learning still as a parent, as a person, and I know you're a a people pleaser Mm -hmm. and doing your own work around that, is just being like, okay, 
I just need to tolerate her discomfort in this moment. Yes. yes. I just need to like tolerate that look and not let it like elevate me, not even have a discussion afterwards about it. Right. Like I just need to like walk away and tolerate the discomfort that, yes, like when you're parenting, everything is not a win win. Your self-care doesn't always translate into like them being able to like feel cared for and be a happy, whole, healthy person. Sometimes it really does feel like, no, you're disappointing because you have interests outside of me. And so I feel like my work right now is to build my own window of tolerance, as my therapist would say. For, yeah, the moments where I'm, I am a disappointment and that's okay. I will disappoint people. I am a disappointing parent, but I have people that I can look to like my partner and others in our community for those moments where I'm like, okay, what's the difference between being a disappointing parent and being an asshole parent? And will you call me out when it is starting to get to the point where like, yeah, like that's just, yeah, yeah. Aaron, you could, again, you could lean in you could yield, you could give up some of the things that you love to move towards this person in this particular season and moment. That just helped me so much. It did. I mean, it, I, it just, that just helped me so much to think it, to, to, because both because I experienced the exact same process (laughs) daily, (laughs) but also this idea of having people there to like, that's one of the, the, one of my friends says there's community, sanity in community. Yeah. I'd, I think you'd have to add there a sanity in healthy community because <laughs> uh-huh, not uh-huh, all communities uh-huh. are very healthy. But that's one of the things we don't often think of, you know, like so, like having community around to, to be able to check ourselves. Yes. Especially around parenting and, and absorb those, those moments of impact where we, you know, I think of this too, like no you have been with your partner for a long time. So maybe you can tell me how you view this, but this idea that we should get everything we need from a partner, a romantic partner, especially a partner, a spouse is very much still alive. Yeah. Thanks Disney. And (laughs) I have learned that that does not work that we have to spread our needs. And I don't mean certain needs, you know, (laughs) unless that's your thing, which is fine. But like, you have to spread your, your health, for me, sobriety, your sanity, and support around many, many people. Yes. Okay, so why would the mother that's what's often projected on the mother. Yes. What if we we were able to turn that around and and use that same concept for mother? Like of course it's it's going to fail if you put all your needs and desires and wants on your romantic relationship. Yes. 100% of the time. Yes. It's disappointing, it's sad, it's frustrating. All, the, all those things are true, and yet that's reality. But we kind of refuse to accept that reality for mothers. We do. That's a really good point, and not one that I hit on the head in the book, but I've been having more and more discussions around it as I have been talking about the book in different communities. 
And I'm, I've been playing with this phrase, vocational polyamory. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> that, we actually, that we actually need like vocational polyamory in our lives, that it's really helpful. And I don't mean just like the work that we do, but I mean like we need to feel called and assigned to a, a wide group of people. Uh. Um, and not so wide. Like I don't, you can't be like, you know, you have to limit. I would need to do more research and listen to people in actual polyamorous relationships to really extend this metaphor. <laughs> but I do feel like there's some wisdom in saying, again, I, it's actually not healthy for me to hold this love exceptionally above all others. That there's something really beautiful in holding this love in a web of relationships mm-hmm. that hold me and hold the thing that I'm loving so that we can actually get our needs met in multiple ways and in varied ways. And yes. I think that's what I hope the book is, is, uh, does, is that it's also an ode to friendship. I really do think friend love is one of the most underrated loves. Oh my um, goodness, yeah. In human history, and yet, like nerd alert here, I think theologically it is the love that is lifted up above all others. There is literally a Bible verse that says there's no greater love than someone who would lay their life down for a friend. Um, not lay their life down for their child, not lay their life down for God, mm-hmm. um, but friends. And friends can encompass so many of the relationships we do love. It doesn't mean those relationships with our children and our spouses are not unimportant. It just means like friendship love is the democratic love that can actually hold it all together and help us commit to loving each other wildly, but not exclusively. Yeah. And I just think that, that there's something, I'm just really curious. What does that mean to love people wildly? And maybe instead of exclusively, I'll say exceptionally, to love wildly, but not exceptionally. Like I can love you wildly and I can still love other things. I can still love other people. And there's actually something really beautiful and communal in that way of belonging, where we actually look out for one another rather than just keep cultivating the relationships that are nearest to us um, or most fulfilling to us or that we see the rewards of. Because otherwise, if if we kept living that way, there would be no margin for neighbor love. Right. And that feels I, I hope that you feels write a book about that. <laughs> I do. It's one of those things I think about a lot too is friends friendships and female friendships especially. They're tricky and they're so much yeah. And it's all related to everything we're talking about, I think. Yes. Yes. And more. Yeah. Friendship. It's where it's at. Okay, so I want to come around to where to to a close. So what it why did it matter to you to speak directly to Christianity's influence on, on motherhood in America? One of the unsurprising things I found in doing research for this book is that religious women who deviate from the mother scripts are more stigmatized than their secular counterparts. And it felt really important to me as someone who is religious, who has a theological degree, to speak directly to those women and say, that's bullshit. <laughs> Let me tell you another way of interpreting scriptures, traditions, the social background behind why some of these scripts became so prominent to relieve you of any religious guilt 
or moral pressure Mm -hmm. you feel to mother in particular ways. So it felt important to speak directly to the people who've been most harmed by the traditional scripts and are insistent that these are the right, good, and holy way for a woman to live a good life. But then the second reason was American Christianity is really steeped in the founding of this country, uh, is really steeped in the political commitments that people hold. I think we see that really clearly again with the overturn of Roe v. Wade, how religion and religious principles untethered from actual theological tradition can wield real harm. And a lot of this quote focus on the family that we see in American politics and specifically more conservative American politics is new, really new in the course of Christian history as an emphasis. And so it really felt important to me for whether you're religious or not to kind of pull back the curtain and say, here's what's going on. Here's how this history evolved Here's why it's really not about you and your body. (laughs) Here's why it's really about um, these systems of oppression and power and control. Um, And so, again, anything I can do to relieve people and women in particular of the personalized feelings of guilt and shame for not measuring up felt really important to do, whether Christian or not. These are the waters we swim in in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, And these commitments have been used to wield real harm against women's bodies and pregnant bodies in particular. You shared a blessing to all quote unquote nurses and doctors and sex educators and social workers and parents and cool aunts who will continue to be the cultural padding we need against a mother venerated but women phobic world. So there's two phrases, amazing phrases in that. And you've said one of them several times, cultural padding, and then mother-venerated but women-phobic world. Let's end with you saying what you mean by those two phrases. We live in a country where mothers and families are lifted up as one of the greatest social goods, and yet we do jack shit to support the actual people who are doing the mothering labor, which is predominantly women. Our family leave policies are laughable in comparison to other countries of our stature and economic output. Our maternal mortality rates are abysmal for the kind of healthcare we have access to, and especially for women of color. And now we're seeing the effects of this again on our right to make our own reproductive choices. And so there's this weird thing that happens when mother, a role, is lifted up above the actual health and well-being of women, a person, Mm -hmm. a human. And so I tell people part of what I hope this book does is make you suspicious anytime you see the word mother in place of woman. Anytime someone passes away, they left behind a mother and children, whatever, just like start like reading and listening with new ears to say, why is it important right now 
to claim this person as a mother and not a human or as a mother and not a woman, what are we hoping to compel? Because it's a strategy. And that's, again, what I, I, every script that I lift up is a strategy to compel women's labor Mm. and to compel women to conform um, in a particular way that serves people's needs, often not our own. And so my hope, my hope, my hope, my hope is that (laughs) we could eventually live in a country where women are people too. Imagine. And where I don't have to be compelling to you because of the relationships I have, that I don't have to be compelling to you because of the like, gross national, gross domestic product I can produce. Anytime you see anxiety about birth rates, you should feel very worried, very worried that we're anxious about birth rates because most often it's a worry about certain people's birth rates, certain races' birth rates, certain socioeconomic status birth rates. And I just think that is, that is where you're seeing we need women's unpaid labor to continue operating in this very capitalistic, consumeristic way that we've been on for some time now. And I really hope that this book helps women reclaim their agency as a human person. Oh, I'm so glad you're in the world doing this work. Really, really, really. Thank you. Oh, thanks. That was a lot. <laughs> you, I've probably used all of your two hours of... No, 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 no. I still got a good 45 minutes. (laughs) No, but really, this is a a really important book. Your work is really important. I can't wait to see what else you do. And I'm just grateful that you that you're doing that you're doing this. It's it's critical, not even important. I think Mm. it's really critical for for women, mothers, non mothers. Mm. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, opportunities to submit questions for AMAs, and invites to join me for members-only events. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want, but it also means we're 100% reliant on you for support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member. You can do this for as little as $5 a month. I cannot stress this enough. You could make a huge difference for as little as $5. Please head on over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True.